Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Proverbs. Um, we are uh, beginning a new series this week um, in the book of Proverbs. And the title of the series is Live It Out, which is the, the Proverbs as a Catalyst for Personal Discipleship. And I want to tell you a little bit about why I chose uh, the title, Live It Out. You know, uh, I think in the year 2017, if anybody makes a truth claim to you, um, it's very easy to not evaluate the truth claim as a truth claim, but to look at somebody's life and to say, are, are they living what they're claiming? And uh, I, I think all of us have this hypocrisy meter in our, in our mind, you know, and so we look at somebody, we say, okay, they're claiming a truth claim, are they living it out? Are they doing what they're claiming to believe in? And I think in the year 2017, it's almost like we have the latest software version of the hypocrisy meter, and it's like our hypocrisy meters are very, very finely tuned. And when somebody says something to you, your first thought is, are they living that out? Are they doing what they're claiming to do? That's what it's like in 2017, you know, to, to be skeptics and cynics about truth claims. We're always saying, what's their angle? What are they trying to sell me? Why do they want my email address? You know, we're, we're skeptics, we're cynics in the year 2017. And so we're, we're wondering about, does truth really work? Now, when you think about, about Jesus' last statement of the Great Commission, I think Jesus is very sensitive to this. Because Jesus says, teach the people that you've led to, led to me, led to Christ, teach them to obey all the things that I've commanded you, all the things. And so if we name the name of Jesus, people should rightly look at our life and say, are, are they, they really living this stuff out? Are they living it out in their marriage? Are they living it out in their private life? Are they living it out in their job? Are they living, are they living this out? And so when I think about the book of Proverbs, I think it's, the, it's really the, the main book in the Bible where we have practical, tangible ideas about living out truth and applying truth to life. Now this morning, all I, all I really want to do is introduce the book to you and show you why this is such an important book to read. Why this was such an important book, for instance, to, uh, to James, the one who wrote the epistle to James, or to Jesus in his ministry. This was a very important book to the New Testament writers, and there's a good, there's a good reason for it. So what I want to do is I want to lead you through five questions. I'm going to ask and answer five questions about uh, the book of Proverbs, and I'll tell you right away what my takeaway is at the very end, that I'm going to give you at the very end. I hope that you will read this book over the course of the series at least two times. The book has 31 chapters. You can read a chapter a day. You could go through it twice during this series. And there's a particular strategy I want to encourage you to pursue as we go through it. Why read the book of Proverbs? Well, let's, let's look through the five questions. First question is, why was this book actually written? And we know the answer from the very uh, first chapter. Hear, my son, your father's instructions, 
and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garden for your head and pendants around your neck. Those four lines give us insight into why this was written. It was written for discipleship. It was written so that an older believer could disciple a younger believer, and that younger believer would pick up on truth and live out truth. In this case, it was the father and the mother who were discipling the kids. And the wording is very precise here. The father gives one kind of teaching. The mother gives a slightly different kind of teaching. Those teachings are going to be complementary. If you look at those particular words, the mother teaches her children God's word. The father teaches how God's word applies to life. And the idea was that discipleship would take place inside community. In this case, it was moms and dads discipling their kids. Now, if we apply this into the New Testament era, one of the things we find is this. We find that discipleship is designed to take place inside community. And the book of Proverbs was designed to be read in community and lived out in the context of community. So this book was written for discipleship. Now, let me, get, let me just start right off with an example. This is a guy named Dallas Willard, and uh, I've known about him for decades, but I began re- trying to read as many of his books as I could possibly read to, about two years ago. Dallas Willard was the professor of philosophy at USC for, I, I think, about 40 years. He could talk philosophy and theology with the best of them. He was thoroughly evangelical in his approach. But Dallas Willard was a fantastic disciple maker. And Willard uh, came up with a number of proverbs that he would use in discipling people. So one of his proverbs was this. This will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. Here's a guy who's a philosopher. He could quote Plato and Aristotle and Seneca and Cicero and all these people. But when he was discipling and coaching and mentoring some of his his students, he would come up with these proverbs. And I read this for the first time, and I immediately picked up on it and realized, okay, whenever I deal with a tough issue, I'm going to say that to myself. Rod, this will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. So the idea behind a proverb is that you take truth and you apply truth to life. That's why this book uh, of Proverbs was written. That's question number one. Question number two is, all right, who wrote the book? And why uh, did he, he write it? Well, the story starts with King David. And I want to take you back to the 10th century BC, to the palace of King David in Jerusalem. I want to take you to a very dark time in David's life. David was a multi-talented man whose first talent was war. That's how he was able to be established on the throne. David fought wars for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And at one point, you know, he says, I, I'm going to retire from active duty in my military. And I'm going to go back to the palace and I'm going to live in the palace. That's a That's a good decision at one level. However, David was this adrenaline-driven guy 
who now is in the quiet and the calm of the palace. He didn't know how to handle himself, and he made some really bad decisions. He had an affair with Bathsheba. He had, she got pregnant, and then he decides to murder her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And that led to absolute disaster inside his family. Well, David marries Bathsheba to cover up the affair. That baby dies. They have another child, and that child's name is Solomon. Now, Solomon was a very interesting young, young boy. Uh, Solomon is tutored by Nathan the prophet. And while Solomon is being tutored, Solomon sees his stepbrothers and sisters. David had many wives. He sees his stepbrothers and sisters fighting and bickering. It becomes a horribly dysfunctional family. And little Solomon is looking all around at his brothers and sisters while he's being tutored by Nathan the prophet. And Solomon is saying to himself, I'm assuming, I don't want to be like that. I'm not going to be like that. I don't think I want to be like that. The family is crumbling all around him. And Solomon is learning and observing as this, this dysfunctional family is beginning to fall apart. Well, <clears throat> Solomon is destined to be one of the greatest men who ever lived. Solomon uh, is emerging through Nathan the prophet's tutoring from a boy to a man and from a man to a king. You think about the greatest people who ever lived. I'm sure you can name some of them off the top of your head. People like Mozart and Michelangelo. People like Martin Luther King and Augustine and Bonhoeffer and Wilberforce and, and many, many great people. Solomon should be ranked among all of these people. He was one of the greatest wisest men who ever lived. Well, in 970 AD, uh, BC, when Solomon was only 16 years old, he was anointed to be Israel's third king. He's a teenager. He's 16. Doesn't have his driver's license yet. Well, they didn't have cars back then. Maybe there was a chariot license or something. He, he is a young, young man. And yet, his rise to the throne is clearly from God. And as soon as he's anointed king, he's on this trajectory toward greatness. Now, why did he become so great? Well, you can point to a single event that produced that greatness. One evening, God appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, ask me what I should give to you. Now, imagine God came to you in a dream and, and said that. Rod? What do you want me to give to you? You can pick anything. Pick anything. What do you want me to give to you? What would you say? Uh, okay, fame, money, power, different career. I mean, those are the kinds of things that most people would say. Solomon says this, God, I want wisdom. Wisdom to lead God's people for God's glory. And God was very pleased with this. And God said, because you've asked for wisdom to lead, I'm going to give you wisdom and everything else thrown in. God pours out his blessings on Solomon. And Solomon immediately begins to display very high levels of wisdom. People are blown away by his leadership style. 
and his kingdom soon begins to encompass what is today Israel, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. The Middle East, which is in so much conflict today, that was Solomon's kingdom. And Solomon was able to unite that region under his rule. Well, during the first part of Solomon's life, he did well. He did, he did very well. Big building projects were popping up all over the place. His kingdom was run like a well-oiled machine administratively. He's receiving favor from kings and queens from all over the ancient world. But there's a problem. Here's this incredibly great individual, and there's a problem. And the problem is that his heart is becoming divided. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says this, 16 says this, the king must not acquire many horses for himself, nor shall he acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he require for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, I find Deuteronomy 17, 16 fascinating because that command prohibits the king from falling prey to the, the common temptations of money, sex, and power. Think about it. Gold is the money side. The many wives is the sexual satisfaction side. The horses would equal the power side. What God is saying to kings is, I want you to be tempered in the way that you handle yourself. I don't want you to multiply these things because I don't want your heart to be turned away from me so that you think that you don't need me. And guess what happens to Solomon? Um, 1 Kings 11, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away uh, after their gods. However, Solomon clung to these and love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And pretty soon, incredibly, Solomon is setting up shrines to Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and then more shrines to Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and then shrines to Shamash, the god of Moab. So here's a guy who started so incredibly well, but slowly his heart became divided, and now he is forsaking his love for God, and now he's pursuing the idols, which God had said, don't don't pursue those. Do whatever you can to not pursue those. Toward the end of his life, Solomon comes back, but there is this gap, there is this season of life that was an abyss. It was a dark hole. In fact, Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon writes about the abyss. He writes about the dark hole, and he says, man, my, my life was was vanity. It was meaningless. It was like going after puffs of smoke that would dissolve in the wind. My life was futile. And so toward the end of his life, what Solomon does is Solomon writes Ecclesiastes to, to talk about his, his journey from faith 
to unfaith and back to faith, and he concludes the book of Ecclesiastes with the same concept that he uses as he begins the book of Proverbs. Look at this. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Then he goes through this gap of great pain, comes back to God, and in Ecclesiastes 12.13, he says, The end of the matter, after all has been heard, is this. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, the reason why I, I tell you the story of Solomon as the writer of Proverbs is this. Solomon had supernatural wisdom from God, no doubt. He had supernatural wisdom. But Solomon also had the wisdom that comes from the hard knocks of life. So when you read this book, don't read it like, yeah, fine, Solomon. If I was like you and I got supernatural wisdom from God, I'd be wise as well. Yeah, great. I get it. But your, your wisdom is not related to the real world. That's not true. Because Solomon had wisdom that came from very, very challenging, hard, frustrating, and difficult situations. Solomon knows the height of success, the depths of failure. He's a, a guy who can, be, who can be trusted. So that leads to the next question, that is, what, what exactly is a proverb? When, when we're reading these, these things, these short, pithy statements, what exactly is a proverb? Well, I've hinted at it a, a second ago. But let me, let me dig a little bit more deeply into it. You know, um, the, there's a lot of l types of literature, and we call them literary genres, right? And some literary genres are very well known to us. Like, we, we know fantasy literature. There's J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, there's the, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, there's the, the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, the Hobbits, Frodo and Merry and Pippin and Sam. And we know fantasy literature. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you have read Harry Potter, that would fall under the fantasy literature, literature genre. Well, guess what? Nobody knew that genre prior to, to about 1900. First real fantasy genre book was The Wind in the Willows. And here, here we have Tolkien who virtually invented the genre. And the genre wasn't even popular until the 1960s, 10 years after he published it. Genres come and go. How about science fiction? Nobody knew science fiction until a 19-year-old young woman named Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And now we all know science fiction as a genre. Well, genres come and go. The genre that was super popular in Solomon's era was proverbial literature. A lot of people wrote it. There are pharaohs in Egypt who wrote proverbial literature. The instruction of Amenmop uh, is, you know, was a, a version of Egyptian Proverbs. They were very popular. And the Bible recognizes this. 1 Kings 4.29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men, including C.S. Lewis. And J.R.R. Tolkien. And um, no, these are the famous people of that, of that day. Uh, Ethan the Ezraite and Heman and Calcol and Darda and the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs and his songs were 1,005. They knew how popular Proverbs were in the ancient world. 
And what the writer of Kings is saying is Solomon's, Solomon's Proverbs surpassed all the other Proverbs that were out there. 1 Kings chapter 4. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. So King Solomon is writing a genre of literature that was very popular in the ancient world, and he did it better than anybody else did it. Now, just to, just to help you think through this, I, I want to kind of contextualize this to, to, to our day. I have my Proverbs because when life gets tough, I want something that I can recall immediately and not have to think about, this theologian says this, the great theologian Josh McNall says this, uh, other theologians say this. I, I can't do that in the heat of the battle. I need to have a proverb. So my proverb, as I've often said to you, is ETC, Rod. Every thought captive. Stop it. Bring every thought under captivity to Christ. ETC for me also means embrace the chaos. If things are crazy, okay, don't fight the chaos. Embrace the chaos, live in it in God's strength. I have my Proverbs. It's interesting that uh, Donald Rumsfeld, when he was chief of staff for Gerald Ford, kept a stack of three-by-five cards in his coat pocket, and he would use Proverbs. And he said, here's one of his Proverbs. He would say, keep your sense of humor. The higher a monkey climbs, the more you see his behind. And he would say that to people in, in the White House who were, you know, getting a little uppity and, and prideful. He would say, don't do or say things you would not like to see on the front page of the Washington Post. That's a good proverb to remember when you're making a decision. Um, we all have, we all have our, our little proverbs that, that, we, that, that we have. So, and by the way, you can find Rumsfeld's rules on the internet. They are very, very interesting snippets of leadership. I just have to tell you, there is a vast difference between the Proverbs of Donald Rumsfeld or the Proverbs of Dallas Willard or the Proverbs that you or I might come up with. You know, our friends in Cuba will often regale us with little Cuban Proverbs. And the Cuban Proverbs are really fun, you know, because one of my friends will say, as my mother used to say, and he'd reel off a proverb, a common Cuban proverb. And they're very interesting. They're just so different than the kind of Proverbs that we would have within our culture. But these are ways of thinking about truth in bite-sized pieces that we can remember in the heat of the battle. And I'll tell you, the difference between our common Proverbs and biblical Proverbs is this. It's this. The Proverbs in the Bible are revealed from God. The Proverbs in the Bible are revealed authoritative truth. So when you reel off a proverb that maybe you've memorized, you're reeling off something that God has inspired for your personal discipleship. That leads to a fourth question. What is wisdom? Okay, if, if, the, if the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom, all right, so then what is wisdom and how does it work and how do I weave it into my life? Well, let me, let, let me read about how wisdom works. <clears throat> the Lord possessed me, that is wisdom, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I, wisdom, was set up. 
At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth where there was no springs abounding with water. He's personifying wisdom as if wisdom is a person, as if wisdom is sort of a personified, a personified thing. Well, throughout Proverbs chapter 8, we describe, he describes the rest of creation, and then at the end, we get the payoff, 8.33. Through the whole time, like the whole time of God's creation, I, Lady Wisdom, was beside him, that is God. Like a master workman, I, Lady Wisdom, was his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. I got to tell you, this is a fascinating idea. What this says is that wisdom is the way the world works. The world works in a certain way. The world is set up in a certain way. There's a moral fabric to the universe. There's a moral fabric to God's world. The universe is set up in a certain way. Lady wisdom was there watching over the way God set up the world. Wisdom is knowing how the world works from God's vantage point and submitting to it. Let me just say it again. Wisdom is observing that the world works a certain way, and wisdom is knowing the way the world works from God's vantage point and submitting to that and doing what is wise. That's how he describes wisdom in uh, Proverbs 14, uh, Proverbs 8. So here's an example of how the world works. In all hard work, there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Is that true? Is that true? What if I had a proverb that says, you know what? I love laziness, and I know it's going to work out great because I I just know money's going to come to me somehow. Does the world work that way? doesn't work that way. God hasn't set up the world to work that way. God set up the world to work in a different way. God set up the world to work so that hard work leads, tends to profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. God has set up the world in a certain way, and those who are wise discern that, and they live according to that, and there are natural benefits that flow from that. Here's another one. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he was slow to anger, quiets contention. What if I had a different proverb? And the different proverb says, if I'm upset, I'm going to yell and be angry because that's going to solve the problem. Does the world work that way? Never has, never will. The world does not work that way. The world works in such a way that if I am slow to anger, I can make conflict dissipate or I can solve conflicts in ways that are healthy for the relationships. Wisdom is discerning that God has ordained a moral fabric to the world, and if I will discern that and submit to that, generally good things are going to flow from that. That's how wisdom works. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, Are there non-Christians who can learn wisdom? Of course there are. Of course there are. There are non-Christians who can be observant about the way the world works. They can discern true truth. 
they can observe that truth, they can submit to that truth, and they can be regarded as generally wise people. I read some of the things that Aristotle wrote about friendship, and I think that guy understood friendship. I read some of the things that the philosopher uh, Epictetus said about, about having proper expectations for life. And I think, you know, that he understood certain wise things about life. That's good. There are certain modern self-help writers who can say certain things. You think, yeah, you know what? If somebody did that, that, that would work. So there are non-believers who can understand true truth. But the difference is this. When we have the Holy Spirit guiding us into ways that are wise, we fellowship with the God who set up the fabric of the universe. We fellowship with him, and he empowers us to live well. The core of wisdom is this. God has set up the world in a certain way. Wisdom is understanding that and submitting to it in the Spirit's power. Now, let me, let me dig really deeply just for a moment and tell you how you, how you do that. Number one, you have a proper view of God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If I'm going to be truly wise, I must have a biblical worldview. I must have the correct worldview. And so part of wisdom says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to know who God is, I'm going to embrace that worldview, and I'm going to live according to it. Here's another, another thing that you do if you want to be wise. You've got to have a correct view of life. Uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Um, in the book of Proverbs, all through the Proverbs, what we, what we see is that wisdom is encountered in community. How did I get the wisdom that I got growing up? My mom and dad. They were people of faith. They had a measure of wisdom. They conveyed that to me. It happened in a community. How did I grow in wisdom when I was in college? I was discipled by a mentor, a coach, a disciple maker who was a great guy who, who, who taught me in the context of community. Wisdom always comes in the context of community. People who say, I don't need anybody else, I'm fine. They're, they're not going to grow in wisdom. Wisdom is the product of community. Uh, if you want to grow in wisdom, I've got to have an accurate view of me. There's an amazing verse in Exodus where we see natural talents being given by God. Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to do the work of the building of the tabernacle. You see that word skill there? That word skill is the word wisdom. And the cool thing about, about, about you know, an accurate view of me is that as I understand my gifts and submit those gifts to God, God gives me wisdom in how to live my life under his sovereign authority. Also a clear view of Jesus. Guess who the embodiment of wisdom is? Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, Jesus is the one who holds together the fabric of the universe. But in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
So if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna live out wisdom, I gotta realize wisdom is the moral fabric of the universe, but Jesus is the embodiment of all wisdom. If I don't know how to be wise, I look at the example and I look at the life of Christ. So that leads us to the final question. All right, how do I get wisdom? How to get wisdom? Well, here are four, four takeaways for getting wisdom. First of all, you gotta seek it. You gotta seek it. Um, Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. If you want to be wise, you have to have a taste for wisdom. Let me tell you how easy it is to lose your taste for wisdom. Pull out your smartphone, get onto Facebook, and read all the posts, and believe all the posts. And you're, you're going to be you're, you're going to be given all sorts of things, some of which may be wise. Josh's blog is wise. He's got a great blog. I love reading his stuff. Some of, the, some of them are wise. Some of the things you read on Facebook are not so wise. But if you're getting your truth from Facebook, you're going to lose your taste for authentic wisdom. You're going to lose it. And so you, what you want to do is you, is you, is you want to have the proper, you cultivate a taste for wisdom. How many of you loved coffee the first time you tasted it? You tasted it and thought, wow, this is amazing. It's like vanilla ice cream. I love this. Now, you, you, you cultivated a taste for coffee because you wanted the hit of caffeine, right? You have to cultivate a taste for wisdom because most of what we see out in the world is not so, not so wise. Second takeaway, be curious about life. Here's the personification of wisdom again. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. This proverb is picturing a market. You know, so when we've been down to North Africa to visit our, our, uh, our son and daughter-in-law, we will go into these, these ancient markets and, and I can imagine, you know, wisdom crying aloud in the marketplace, you know, crying out, you know, raising her voice. Um, at the entrance of city gates, she speaks, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? The idea is that wisdom is all around us. It's, it's if we just be a curious and observant person. How many times have you observed an interaction and thought to yourself, how would I do that differently? How would I have handled that conflict differently? What can I learn from this? See, wisdom comes to the curious. Wisdom doesn't come to people who think they know it all. You know, somebody who's the know-it-all will hear a statement and say, oh, that's not true. That's not true. Or, oh, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Or, I totally disagree with you about that. The curious person says, interesting, tell me more. The curious person says, I'd like to hear your perspective on that. So curiosity is the thing that creates in the environment where wisdom can take place. Third thing you can do is ask God for it. If James makes a promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask of God, who gives generously and all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, there are many times where I have had somebody come to me for counsel. And um, in, the, in the moment, I have said, Lord, um, I, I need your help. Lord, can you, can you give me wisdom? And then, I, and then the next thing that comes out of my mouth, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, thanks. I think that, I think that was in the ballpark. Thanks. Ask God. He'll give it to you in the moment. And then the final thing is seek the person in the presence of Jesus. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 30 and 31. Uh, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And the idea is that you come to Christ and you build a relationship with Jesus, he is going to give you wisdom, and wisdom will be encountered in relationship to him, with him. So that's the book of Proverbs, and I want to encourage you as we go through it uh, this summer to read a chapter a day, and while you go through it reading a chapter a day, maybe you just underline one verse. I would encourage you to take a picture of that verse in your smartphone. You know, the average person picks up their smartphone 85 times a day. So how about you picking up your smartphone eight times a day and thinking about the verse in Proverbs that you read that morning and just saying, okay, here's, here's the verse I read. I'm going to meditate on this eight times a day. 10% of the amount of times I pick up my smartphone, I'm going to meditate on a proverb eight times a day. If you read through the book of Proverbs twice, you will end up having 62 verses that you've meditated on in the Proverbs by the time we're done with our series in Proverbs. Um, I think that will make you wise this summer. You go into the fall uh, like really wise, wiser than you are right now. And some of you are very wise right now. So last thing is, we'll, we'll end with this before we have communion, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So as we come to the communion table, let's come with a joyful heart. It'll be good medicine for us as we enjoy the presence of Christ and take communion. Father in heaven, um, as we begin to transition toward communion, we just want to express our gratitude that wisdom resides in you. You are, Lord Jesus, the essence of wisdom. You lived out your life displaying wisdom. We love you, Lord, because of the wisdom that you've given to us. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you and ask you to give us wisdom. As we go through the series in Proverbs, regale us, Lord, with wisdom that comes from you so that we might become people who are, who are wise and discerning. And, Lord, as we take communion now, we just remember the death of, of Jesus and we, uh, we enter into that experience, Lord, thanking you for your death, your burial, your resurrection, your ascension, and that you were seated at the right hand of God right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he this is my body broken for you. Take this in memory of me. He took the cup, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. So you come forward and um, as God leads you and let's enjoy the communion table.